welcome to the JNMP podcast. My name is Elizabeth Hyten, and I'm going to be joined today with Professor Mary Riley from the Institute of Neurology, Queen's Square, London. And we're going to be talking about peripheral neuropathy in complex inherited diseases, in particular in Mary's recent review in the JNMP. So, Mary, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Mary, the difference between a pure neuropathy and a more complex neuropathy, the things that you talk about in your paper, so what are those differences and can they all be linked to sort of inherited genes? So what I've done with this paper is I define and classify inherited neuropathies into those that are a pure neuropathy or those that are complex. And the pure neuropathies are the ones where neuropathy is the sole manifestation of the illness. So they're the kinds of diseases that people will recognize immediately, like Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease and the related neuropathies. And then there are the second group, which is where you have a neuropathy as part of a more complex disease, often a complex neurological disease. So those patients may have central nervous system involvement, such as ataxia or spasticity or white matter disease in the brain scan, or they may have a complex medical disease, such as in porphyria when there may be liver involvement, etc. So it's a way of defining both groups. And they, by definition, by calling them inherited, we're only dealing with the diseases here that are linked to causative genes. And of course, it depends on which neuropathy as to whether the gene is known. So for instance, in our practice, for the sole or the simpler inherited neuropathies, we find the genetic diagnosis in about 72% of cases now. Whereas with the complex ones, it's difficult to quantify that because they're an increasingly increasingly referral base for us and we haven't quite worked out the percentages of the number we diagnose or not. But there's no doubt they all have underlying genetic causes. It sounds like um, it might be a daunting diagnosis for a clinician. Um, So how difficult is it to diagnose an inherited neuropathy? So I think um, it varies again. So there's straightforward, simple neuropathy. So the neuropathy is the sole part of the disease. It's relatively easy for a neurologist to diagnose that a person has a neuropathy because the signs, particularly the signs, the symptoms and signs, and the, are fairly straightforward. And the electrical studies, that is the nerve conduction studies, are almost always abnormal, um, with the exception of some small fiber studies, so small fiber neuropathies. So the actual diagnosing neuropathy is not the difficulty bit. In terms of diagnosing whether it's hereditary or not, the first step in that is working out is it hereditary or is it an acquired neuropathy? And that is sometimes more difficult than is obvious. For instance, if somebody comes and there is no family history, and they have a late onset neuropathy, it's not always obvious that it is genetic. Whereas if they come from a family with multiple other people affected with the same disease, it's more obvious. Once you've decided it is a neuropathy, in terms of taking the diagnosis further, I mean, in individual countries, there's different ways genetically of doing that. And in most North European, Australian, US, UK practice, for simple neuropathy that's inherited, about 60% of patients have one gene, that is the chromosome 17 duplication, um, which causes the demyelinating form of CMT, CMT type 1. So the first steps are relatively straightforward. What we dealt with in this article are the complex inherited diseases, which, were, which are more difficult. These are where the neuropathy is part of a more complex disease. And sometimes the neuropathy is the initial part. So when you see a patient, they just have a neuropathy, and it is some years before they get the rest of the syndrome. Or sometimes people present with neuropathy plus 
other symptoms or signs. Or sometimes the neuropathy is only found after examining or doing tests. It is not the predominant part of the disease. And in those patients, it is daunting. So the classic patient may have you know, some learning difficulties, some ataxia, some spasticity and neuropathy. And there's such a huge differential to try to get a grip on how to diagnose this is quite difficult. So what we've tried to do is we first of all realized with next generation sequencing, and that is where people get multiple genes sequenced in parallel. So when they send a sample, they may get results of abnormalities in genes they weren't expecting or didn't know about. And one of the challenges is working out if those results are actually relevant to the patient. So what we try to do in this article is look at the commonest associations of neuropathy, and they are ataxia, spasticity, or learning difficulties. And then we go to all the others as well. And we've tried to just give the common causes for all of these and an approach both if you see the patient in clinic to how you should approach the diagnosis in genetically, but this also serves as an approach if you get a next-generation sequencing result and you're trying to work out, is the variant relevant to your patient or is it just a variant that could be found in a normal person? So the approach is different. Some of these patients, as we outline, scanning is very important, looking at the central nervous system and other tests. And throughout the article, we've emphasized the importance of not missing treatable conditions because albeit it is rare, some inherited neuropathies are treatable. So it's incredibly important not to mention those. And and you mentioned that just then in terms of the advantages of next generation sequencing and how that fits into the proposal put forth by your particular review. Does next generation sequencing have limitations in, in the role it can play in this? Well, it has. First of all, it has huge advantages because obviously next generation sequencing is a way of doing multiple genes together. That can be done by a panel of genes, for instance, we do a panel of about 100 genes for neuropathy. It can be done a panel of all of the genes known to cause neurological diseases, which is hundreds, or a panel of all the genes known to cause diseases, which is about 6,600. It also includes whole exome sequencing, which looks at the whole 20,000 genes, or whole genome sequencing, which looks at your whole genome. So that is the advantage that you have a way now, depending on your resources, of course, and your local um, services, but a way of really capturing most of the genetic data in a person. The major challenge is dealing with what you get back. So you will not, if you screen one gene in the past, you're looking usually for one abnormality. And you sometimes have to deal with two or three variants. Whereas the more you do, the more you deal with. For instance, if you do whole exome sequencing and look at 20,000 genes, you might be left with 100 variants that are potentially real. And then it's trying to work out which of those variants cause the disease. So what you do is, first of all, is the variant in a gene that makes sense? So is it in a gene that could cause neuropathy? Not necessarily that has caused it in the past, but that could cause neuropathy. For instance, if the variant is in a gene in, that it is a gene for a protein that's only expressed in the eye, it's not going to be causing a peripheral neuropathy. So that's, that's, first of all, does it make sense? Secondly, there's various computer programs and ways of looking at the change in the gene to see if that's likely to cause a disease. But they are limited by the knowledge known about the gene. And thirdly, what our article tries to do is really look at the combination of features you might find with a particular gene. So if you found an abnormality in what I would say a gene called transparatin, which causes familial amyloid polyneuropathy, in a patient who had a combination of a neuropathy, autonomic neuropathy and cardiac abnormalities, that certainly would fit the phenotype, 
and it would make you take that variant more seriously and then start seeing if you can validate it by seeing if other members of the family have it. So it's like a map of how the variants fit into diseases or how you would approach the diseases to look for variants. They are the the challenges, but it's a good challenge to have because in the past, we would have these kind of patients and not have the ability to take it further. So I think it's a good challenge to have, but it does mean it is... I think in the past, we would have done clinics and seen a patient and done a huge amount of what we call phenotype and working out exactly what the clinical syndrome was. And then we would use that to ask for specific tests. And now we are evolving into doing that, but also what I call post-diagnostic clinics or validation clinics, where we have the patient, but we have this huge amount of data from results, and we're trying to see are any or which of them are relevant. So it's a different way of practicing, equally complex, but at least you have a bit more in the jigsaw to try to put it together. Absolutely. So it sounds like sort of more wealth of information or understanding, but a more nuanced approach is required from the clinician or sort of understanding what could be pathogenic or what's just noise, so to speak. Absolutely. And I think the other thing which we aren't on top of yet internationally, but we're slowly getting there, is one of the problems is, you know, we realize there's huge variations in different populations. So in London, we have a very multi-ethnic population. So if I see a patient from Somalia or from Pakistan or from London, there will be a different background genetic makeup in that ethnic group. And trying to see if something is pathogenic, that is, if it's causing disease or not, really does depend hugely on the background makeup. So there's an attempt across the world with next generation sequencing to try to put together data from many different ethnic groups so we know what is the variation seen in those normal databases. But that's not complete yet. And actually one of the areas where people are trying to evolve is we're all doing next generation sequencing throughout the world in our own silos and trying to get those together that the data is all available and searchable is a major challenge. And there's various programs, like one called the Matchmaker Program, that tries to to do this. So in the future, um, I think when all this big data is put together in a way which is, you know, searchable, so that if I have a patient from population that we don't have much on at the moment, so one of the African countries, and I don't know if something I have found is real or not in that population. In the future, there may be enough data banked in an international database so that I can go in and check what are the variations seen in that population. Because we do know, particularly in African populations versus other populations, there can be huge variations. So I think that's a challenge for us as a community to deal with all of the big data and to use that to help inform diagnoses in patients. Absolutely. It sounds like a, a problem that quite a lot of medicine now faces anyway in terms of big data and, and collaborating and access to that data across the world. Just in your paper, you're, you sort of use um, examples of, say, how you would use next generation sequencing and the phenotypic presentation of the patient to potentially identify inherited neuropathy. I just wondered if you could walk us through perhaps an example of, of that sort of new technique or the way in which your approach that you're proposing in your review. Yes. So what we've done is we have done a simple figure, which is figure one in the paper, which looks at all of the complex inherited neuropathy syndromes we could find in the literature. And we had multiple other personal databases that we use between the three, between the various groups that are authors in this paper in the US, in Italy and um, in the UK. And we came up with 155 different syndromes currently published that has neuropathy of part of them. So it's a large number of diseases and this will only get bigger. And what we've done is 
break it down so that you have the common disease associations, which are ataxia, spasticity, and slight, my surprise, in the last number of years, the increasing number of patients with neurodevelopmental delay. So we have said it's it's as if you're looking at a patient with complex phenotype, but you put the glasses on of the biggest association with neuropathy. Then you look through the patient with the ataxia glasses or the spasticity glasses or the neurodevelopmental delay glasses. And then within those in table one and table two, we break down the type of neuropathies, whether they're mainly motor and sensory, mainly motor, mainly sensory, or whether they have slow conduction velocities. And by breaking them down with the syndrome, this, the list of things that can cause that gets smaller and smaller. So with you as a patient, you can phenotype them very carefully and you'll know there's a small list. For instance, we have this list always available in clinic and we'll immediately refer to this list to see what it's most likely to be. Or if we have a complex genetic result, particularly from the search side, we can use this list to reduce the number of genes that are relevant to this patient to look to see which ones are pathogenic. So that's the approach we have in it. We have also really gone through all of the others using the phenotypes neuropathy plus an extra parameter syndrome, neuropathy plus a cardiomyopathy, neuropathy plus hematological problems, skin problems, etc. And then we have a very, I think, important, very small group of neuropathies that we define as neuropathies with relapsing and remitting conditions. And these neuropathies are important because if something relapses and remits, that is, comes and goes, it is more likely to have an underlying metabolic defect and therefore more likely to be treatable. An example of that would be the porphyrias, which are a neuropathy which would be treatable but can't present in a way that's very difficult to diagnose. So we've given an example of a few of those. And one of the examples in the paper, just to talk you through it, is a patient whom I look after now. And that patient is someone that I saw originally having been seen by my predecessor, P.K. Thomas. And when P.K. Thomas saw this patient, he would have defined that patient as Charcot-Marie Tooth disease, which at that time was called hereditary motor and sensory neuropathy. And he did notice that there was just a hint that one of the planters were extensor. So it was neuropathy, but there was just a hint there was some upper motor neuron signs. And for reference, this is a patient that's shown in figure 2F in, in my paper. And when I saw the patient, maybe eight years later, I noticed the patient did have a predominant neuropathy, but also had bilateral extensor planters. So there was clearly some upper motor neuron signs. And in the past, we would have found that as hereditary motor sensory neuropathy top five, type five, which is exonal neuropathy with extensor planters. But really, we checked the known genes for that, and this patient had none of them. And then this patient disappeared from medical care for about 10 years, and he came back a few years ago. And at that stage, he clearly had spasticity. So he mainly had an upper motor neuron syndrome with some neuropathy. So putting those glasses on, we then scanned him and found he had a very rare syndrome, which was leukoencephalopathy with brainstem, spinal cord involvement, and elevated lactate. And really, this is almost pathognomonic scan of a gene called DARS2 gene. So we were able to make the diagnosis, but wouldn't have been able to make it 10, 15 years ago. But by this approach of using what was his major symptom now, we were able to make it. But the point about this patient, which I think is a very important learning point for me, is that initially he looked just like a neuropathy. So one of the things that's changed in my practice is sometimes when you see people very early on, even though they look like neuropathy, I now always remember that it may be part of a complex disease. And I don't do 
the MRI scans on everyone, but I have a lower threshold of doing more extensive phenotyping than I would have had in the past because of what's emerged in the literature with next generation sequencing. Absolutely. I mean, your paper is a, a fantastic resource, um, I think, to help clinicians with those sorts of decisions in the light of sort of an overwhelming amount of information. Is that how you sort of saw your review as being a resource to facilitate that sort of process? Well, absolutely. But I'll be very honest, it was a resource for me first. <laughs> so over the last number of years in clinic, I increasingly was getting referred complex neuropathy, and particularly with neurodevelopmental delay and people that have come and they've been investigated as children. And then, you know, when they were very young and then have been followed up in pediatric practice till they're in their mid-teens, late teens, and then get referred through as an adult. And we always take the opportunity then of completely reviewing everything. And I realized that there was these very complex patients, and I needed for myself a better way of doing this. So really it was within our own peripheral group that we decided it would be really good to look at this in detail and to have our own way of doing it. And then once we had written it, we would then update it regularly to have our own database available. So that was the first approach. And then reaching out to people, Steve Scherer, Mike Shy, and David Paris in particular, are part of what we call the Inherited Neuropathy Consortium, which is an NIH-funded consortium investigating inherited neuropathies. So I reached out to them because they have individual databases with patients that may not necessarily have been published to try to expand and really have as thorough as we could list of diseases where neuropathy had been seen as part of the disease and particularly where neuropathy had been seen to present initially as part of a complex disease. So really it was to deal with that problem and then, of course, have it a resource for everyone else as well, um, which I hope would be useful. Absolutely. Well, Professor Riley, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today about your paper and, of course, for publishing in the JNMP. We've really enjoyed this one. So that was Professor Mary Riley from the Institute of Neurology, Queen's Square, London. She's talking about her recent review that's in this month's JNMP. You can read it, but you can also download it on jnmp.bmj.com. And thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.